9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host, and I am in the quarantine ward of the uh, Ministry of SNARK in like the seventh sub-basement because I think I have bubonic plague or something like that. But it does make my voice sound incredibly sexy, doesn't it? Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing to add. Please. I thought you were George Clooney when you started talking, actually. Yeah, <laughs> that happens to me all the time. People come up to me in the street and say, aren't you George Clooney's voice? <laughs> um, anyway, uh, joining us for this episode, as some of you with sharp ears could detect, are Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. Evelyn Farkas of the German Marshall Fund, and Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Um, welcome, guys. I'd like to begin with Evelyn, uh, because, you know, these days, every six hours, there's a new development on the Trump-Russia case. And I'd like to talk about the most recent developments, then open that up a little bit. But the most recent one involves... Um, Maria Butina, a red-haired Russian woman with a strange fondness for firearms, uh, who <laughs> who is in solitary confinement um, in a prison someplace where she was pleading not guilty. And now, perhaps as early as tomorrow, Tuesday, she will be changing her plea. So it looks like she may have been uh, flipped. Uh, and... Uh, Evelyn, I'm just wondering what your insights are on that. Well, I don't have any inside scoop, but what I can tell you is that it's likely that she, I mean, we don't know yet whether she's cooperating or, or cooperating fully or to some extent with Mueller in terms of giving him information about what she did in order to change her plea. But changing her plea will pave the way to do some kind of deal with Mueller that will then let her return to Russia, which is ultimately what the Russian government wants and, as far as we can tell, what she wants. Um, of course, some of this is a little bit why, of conjecture. Why she wants that is rather mysterious. Well, because I think if you turn on Vladimir Putin, you, there's only one place you end up, um, uh, which is... Uh, uh, you know, six feet under or, you know, poisoned by polonium or, and the like. So I don't think she's going to turn on the Russian government uh, fully, right? Uh, although going home, it will be interesting, depending on what she tells Mueller, um, you know, how she will be received. So there are a lot of open questions. I mean, if she, if she speaks and she tells him something of sufficient value, but not too much value that she can't go back home. I, I do think, however, that he is bound to learn something about Russia's funding of the NRA. And my hope is then that will cause us to learn more ultimately about how the Russians use the NRA and how money was funneled from Russia to the NRA to other witting or unwitting candidates. I think we really need to throw 
you know, hopefully, again, through Mueller, we, the American people, need to throw light on the extent to which Russia tried to influence American electoral politics, even beyond Donald Trump. Well, let me ask one quick follow-up question on that, and that is when you uh, mention uh, that, you know, what she can tell them, uh, you know, it's it's slightly different situation uh, than some of the others in this case, since as she was a foreign agent and as she was known to be a foreign agent for some time, one might presume that Mueller has a lot of intercepted evidence, right? Yes. And so he would confront her with this. And I, I guess eventually she would probably have to accept the reality that you know, pleading not guilty isn't going to cut the mustard with Mueller and he'll just keep her in jail. Um, so obviously she's going to try to find a middle ground. My guess is, though, she'll probably try to be a little bit more like Manafort, you know, pretend to cooperate, but only cooperate as much as she thinks she needs to in order to get what she needs, which is an out of jail card, right? Um, Manafort himself is also, I believe, probably a winning Russian operative. And and he, you know, he made the deal with Mueller and then apparently was acting counter to the deal by consulting with the president's counsel while he was talking to Mueller and supposedly cooperating with Mueller. So um, that that tells me that my initial hunch that that Manafort is a bona fide Russian operative is probably correct. Um, so she, she'll she'll probably try to follow his lead. Well, Rosa, you know, when we look at this and we look at it out in terms of the past couple of days, um, we've had this news, we've had the uh, Cohen and Manafort news, uh, the various plea deals. You know, we had the kind of extraordinary event on Friday of uh, the, the the breaking of news that uh, the Southern District of New York was um, alleging that, you know, Michael Cohen committed a couple of campaign finance felonies under in communication with and at the direction of our president, Individual One, um, who will be forever known probably as Individual One. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit weird to me that that happened a couple of days ago. And, you know, it just sort of the water rolls off our back. It's like the president was accused by the Justice Department of committing two felonies. And we're like, oh, it's Monday. What's new today? Yeah, that's true. Um, I think we have been so awash in, in calamity that we we have barely even noticed the latest. Um, and so many of the calamities are, are Trump-related, Trump-induced calamities. Um, it, it's, it's you know, I, I, I do think, we've talked about this before, um, so I'll say it just briefly, that, you know, one part of the, the genius of Trump, uh, you know, it's a sort of idiot savant form of genius, but the part of the genius of Trump is that he's so consistently outrageous all the time, uh, that just when we're responding to one outrage, there's a new one, and we we rush off to that one, and then there's a new one, and we rush off to that one. So there's there's never really time to get fully outraged about anything in particular, and then add that to you know the, the stock market is crashing and Brexit is falling apart, and you know you you name your crisis, we've got it somewhere. Um, it becomes it becomes very very hard for I think for for 
particularly for the media, which is which is forgive me, Ed, um, as our our resident current media expert, you know, the, the nature of the media is to sort of run, run to wherever the ball is at any given moment. Um, and, and that sort of exacerbates the impact of, of, you know, this is already over. We're already on to the next thing. Um, uh, it, I, I, and I'm very doubtful. Um, I, I remain doubtful that any of this is going to have any particular impact on Donald Trump's uh, ability to remain a free man or even his ability to get reelected. But but he committed felonies. The Justice Department felony said, Schmelony. Um, uh, mm. You know. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I I think that I think that it would be much more difficult for Trump to survive politically if Mueller does something that I think he arguably has a a legal and constitutional ability to do, but he almost certainly won't do, which is issue indictments of the president himself. You know, I do think it would be hard to avoid impeachment and hard to run a successful re-election campaign in the face of an actual criminal indictment of the president of the United States. But, you know, Mueller, Mueller seems to be taking the view, which has been the longstanding policy position of the Justice Department, uh, that a sitting president should not be indicted. Um, and so what we're getting, you know, I, I don't think there's, I, I, I wish there that Bob Mueller was, you know, going to appear on the front steps of the U.S. Capitol, you know, with a big, you know, red book in his hand and start reading out loud a, a list of particulars about Donald Trump. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that, uh, as as several other people have argued, uh, including a, a, a smart piece by Marcy Wheeler uh, in the Washington Post a day or two ago, um, the Mueller report is coming in the form of reading between the lines and occasionally reading the actual lines of these indictments of other people. That's that's probably the best we're going to get. You know, there's not going to be some day when he stands up there and says Donald Trump committed the following crimes and felonies and he should be indicted for them. And and as long as there, you know, that that enables Trump to cast this constant um confusing web of crazy tweets and it's not true and no, he didn't say that. And yes, he did. You know, because who is going to, indictment gets people's attention, but who is going to go look at 15 different indictments and put together, you know, line 32 on page 15 of this one with line 12 on page 12 of this other one. Very few people do that. Um, so I don't think it, I, unfortunately, I think I think Trump is going to survive this. I'm I'm appalled to say that, but I think he's going to survive this. I hope you're wrong. I did I did write a sort of one of those Twitter threads, which I've discovered. You know, if you write a Twitter thread at the right time and you catch the zeitgeist, you can have a much bigger audience to it than you might have with writing writing, yes. writing yeah. for a, writing for a newspaper or something like that. And I wrote two over the weekend, but one of them was on this issue of what is he indictable and. At this, you know, shortly after, I think uh, Lawrence Tribe of Harvard, and 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 I think he's doing a little bit more on this, went out and said that's the case. And uh, Jerry Nadler, the incoming head of the Judiciary Committee in the House, said the same thing that he felt that the president was uh, indictable. Um, and frankly, and correct me if I'm wrong, Rosa, but I I actually don't believe the Constitution. Uh, not only does it not prohibit the indictment of the president, but whereas it gives Congress people immunity in certain areas, it actually doesn't do that for the president. 
No, David, I don't I don't think there's a constitutional bar. You know, some argue the opposite. But I think, un unfortunately, for for us, um, the position of the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel for several decades now has been uh, against indicting a sitting president. And Bob Mueller, as we know, um, what is both best about him and perhaps what is worst about him is, you know, he's a company man. Uh, it's it's I, I regard it as very unlikely that he's going to come out and say, you know, it's true that the department for which I have worked, you know, for much of my adult life uh, says don't do this, but screw them. You know, I think it's fine. <laughs> I, I wish he would do that, but I don't think he's going to. So, Ed, you know, um, we have that sort of angle of this thing, but. We've talked about this before, and one of the ones, the angles of this whole thing that I uh, I keep coming back to is that by being caught up in the day-to-day -day headlines of Trump Russia, we lose the scope of it all. And 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 on one level, that scope is here in the U.S. I I, I think I counted, you know, a dozen or more different lines of interaction between the 14 members of the Trump team who have interacted with Russians um, and uh, um, operatives of the Russian government, uh, whether it's the, you know, Trump Tower meeting or it's it's uh, uh, the Maria Butina and the NRA thing or it's uh, 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 uh other other kinds of of uh, uh, dealings having to do with uh, 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 building projects in Moscow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that that scope is quite big. But then if you take it a step further in your homeland, your government is almost as dysfunctional at our, as our government right now dealing with um, Brexit, which is an area where the Russians have played a clear role in helping to finance the leave uh, contingent. Uh, and there are riots in France now uh, where there is some suspicion that the Russians are behind the Yellow Jackets movement. And we know that they've been in this across Europe. And we, we've talked about it before, but literally with every day, it becomes clearer that the scope of this Russian effort to undermine and, undermine and destabilize the West was massive, has been ongoing for years, and is only getting more successful every day. The more we know about it, the more successful it gets, it seems. Uh, yes, the Russian operation is, um, um, is manifold. I mean, it's getting a high return on equity. Um, you know, it's, this is fairly low cost. It's kind of a social media equivalent of 9-11. Um, and so uh, there is no reason, given the fact that, you know, this Congress um, and and by this Congress, you know, let, let's, you know, make the same point for other democracies, has not tightened up America's election interference laws and the cybersecurity around um, America's electoral process. Why wouldn't they continue? I mean, the Brexit situation you know, like uh, I think Trump's election, both are mostly self-made and Russia has, um, you know, fanned the flames very effectively. Uh, I saw somebody, one of my media colleagues tweeting um, uh, w which which job would be less desirable to be Trump's new 
chief of staff in the White House or to be the next British prime minister. And my immediate thought is that uh, having held both jobs, uh, we should probably ask Tony Blair um, uh, because uh, <laughs> he was de facto chief of staff um, during the Bush administration. The uh, ability to... Um, the ability to manage ourselves, the ability to manage the White House or to manage Trump, you know, is um, in, in, exponentially more difficult than than any previous U.S. president. Uh, the, the ability of Trump to rule himself, um, you know, is a category of, of its own. Um, I, I do tend to think that um, focusing at that level on Russia is to look away from the source of the problem, which is in, in, not in the stars, but in ourselves. Uh, uh, I think Russia should be held to account. I think we should, um, uh, that Robert Mueller should continue his investigation. I hope it produces a, a slightly bigger bang at the end than Rosa was indicating. Um, but I, I, I don't think ultimately Russia is the cause of our problems. Um, it exacerbates them. It has not, they did, they did not originate in Moscow. Well, I, th I think that's true. And, and, and I've noticed that sometimes when I bring this up, I, there's a, there's pushback, you know, and people say, um, that, uh, this has to do with, uh, multiple factors and you're granting too much power to the Russians. Um, but Evelyn, you've dealt with them before. This is kind of their strength. It's, it's not that they're driving it all. It's that they're taking advantage of those forces, right? Well, their whole MO is to take advantage of our weaknesses, you know, make us weaker, find out where our weaknesses are, poke and prod them, you know, hold them out for all the world to see, affect our political will by having these things exposed, and, and look for opportunities to keep doing all of this on new fronts. Um, we're barely even talking today about Ukraine. It's shocking to me, you know, I just met with a British... Um, diplomat uh, about an hour ago. And, you know, we, talk, we talked about Brexit and we actually didn't really talk about the Trump stuff very much. We ended up talking about the Balkans because we happen to be interested in it. But I mean, what is going on? You know, the, the Russians have been allowed to seize those Ukrainians in this premeditated attack in, this, in the Kerch Straits between the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea, this shared water space between Russia and Ukraine. And the, the world should be demanding. I mean, there was a half-hearted attempt to demand that they return the ships and the personnel that the Russians into, incidentally also shot at before they captured them. Um, and, you know, there are no new sanctions. The, after those that hue and cry, the initial hue and cry, which was insufficient to cause the Russians to change anything they're doing, we now look even weaker. So every time the Russians take some sort of action and we don't respond, we look weak. Now, maybe there's a delayed response coming, a la, you know, the poisonings in the UK. Maybe there will be some concerted effort to push back. But if we don't do something soon, Putin's going to do something else to test us and to make us look weak. And, and of course, we know, you know, Rosa alluded to it, the, the, the yellow shirt, um, the demonstrations going on in France. The the German Marshall Fund, where I'm a senior fellow now, actually found, you know, online evidence that the Russians were exacerbating that 
very set of demonstrations. So they're they're not only doing what they're doing in Ukraine. Across the board, they're going to continue to be active, and we need to stand up to them. But but I think you make a really important point, which is we're not standing up to them. That in the midst of all not. of this, the president of the United States is being accused of of having multiple levels of multiple ties with Russia. And the simplest thing for him to do to suggest that he was not under their thumb would be to stand up to an act of bald-faced aggression like this and actually say something strong or do something strong or have his secretary of state do something strong. And none of that has happened. No. And, and, and of course, on the other subjects that we've covered here, the other bad guys that he doesn't stand up to is, you know, the North Korea, where things are proceeding apace and we're just pretending it's not happening. So it, it's along those same lines. You know, President Trump and his administration, they like to pretend nothing's happening. The Europeans, I don't know if they're pretending or not. I mean, they know it's happening. They're not as theatrical. But you know, the end result is the same. The bad guys are continuing. The autocrats have the 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 upper hand right now. Well, Rosa, what you did you see the story in the the uh, Times over the weekend about uh, Jared Kushner and MBS? By nature, I, I I did. I didn't read it carefully. I have to admit because I got so grossed out in the first couple paragraphs. But well, the first couple paragraphs are enough because in that case <laughs> as well, it's true. You, I read the whole thing too. But but it, but in that case as well, you've got an authoritarian government that is doing horrible things on a repeated basis. Um, but that has figured out how to pull the strings of the Trump administration to the extent to which that an advisor to the president, who's also the president's son-in-law, is giving him advice on how to get away with murder. Yeah, well, yeah, true. However, um, this is not in any way to exonerate uh, young Jared, um, but I, my take on, on the Khashoggi business is that even if Jared had not been successfully wooed by, by MBS and the Saudis, um, that we would not be in a different place on Khashoggi or, or the Saudis, and we would be in the same place we're in now because the Pentagon is pretty hard over on maintaining current relationships with the Saudis. Um, uh, and I think that that's uh, true of our current defense secretary as well. You know, that, that I think that at the end of the day, those purely uh, pragmatic considerations, which I, which I think are mistaken and have been mistaken for, for a very long time now, not just, not just as a result of the Khashoggi killing or as a result of the war in Yemen, but, but for, for reasons that are deeper and more longstanding. But, but I think that the, you know, the widespread belief in the Pentagon, uh, which, as I said, seems to be shared by our defense secretary, uh, is that, you know, it's, it's, it's the old line, uh, you know, they're bastards, but there are bastards, that, that we're too dependent on Saudi cooperation for too many things and that we just can't afford to screw that up. So I, to, to me, that's probably the primary driver of administration uh, lack of interest in doing anything much with, with Kushner's uh, support of MBS just being the icing on the cake. Well, Ed, you know, we don't really need the Saudis that much, do we? Um, I guess Trump thinks 
I guess Trump thinks that, that we need them to uh, uh, not cut output too much um, because, you know, since the t- stock markets uh, ceased to reflect well on his administration as a metric, um, uh, the oil price is one of the substitutes he's using and he wants to keep it uh, low. Um, but more, didn't they decide just last week they to did. cut output? They, I mean, cut, cut by a million. Um, and there's, there's, you know, a, a very interesting, as you know, Petro relationship there developing between Vladimir Putin and MBS. Um, the, 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 the Russians and, uh, and uh, well, OPEC and non-OPEC members are cooperating quite, um, quite closely with these output cuts. Um, uh, and of course, tr- Trump himself is uh, unwittingly cooperating by by taking Iranian oil uh, as far as he can off the market, which is another output cut. Um, so, uh, uh, I, you know, do do we need them? Well, it depends what your strategic vision is for the Middle East. If your strategic vision for the Middle East is that there are uh, there is um, <clears throat> one uniquely evil actor, namely Iran, and that the overwhelming priority is to marshal. A, a coalition um, to bring about peaceful or otherwise regime change in Iran, then then yes, we do need Saudi Arabia. My, my personal view um, is that I- Iran's menace is being exaggerated and that there are many more sort of complicated interlocking um, problems, of which one is, uh, Iran is one. Um, but also, the- let's just like put a historical footnote in here. The Sunni-Shiite divide, which is essentially the one that creates the tension with Iran and the balance with Iran, is a thousand years old. You know, it you know it was seven hundred and fifty years old when the United States started to exist. You know, the 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 the, the Sunni states in the region will be opposed to and counterbalancing Iran for all time. It's not like our you know, having Jared Kushner there is going to tip the balance in that regard, nor, frankly, if we were to pull back a little bit from them, would they have the luxury of pulling back from us that far? Indeed. And, you know, whether MBS is the person in charge or, or somebody completely different is designated the heir to the throne. Um, Saudi Arabia is going to be Saudi Arabia, as your question implies, um, and it will act as a bulwark um, against Iran. I, I would argue that it's very much not in America's interests to drive the region towards conflict uh, in which America is very clearly on one side. It will suck the US quite unwillingly and uh, given this administration inadvertently into a conflict that I think that uh, whatever you and I say is going to have no impact on the Trump administration's view. Um, And as Rosa points out, I resent that. I resent that. Uh, no, no, that should be an accolade. You should, you should, you should be screaming that one from the rooftops. Um, so, uh, I, yeah, no, I, I fully expect there to be a continuation of this policy, aided and abetted, in a in a particularly sort of unpleasant way. I I feel by Jared Kushner. I think this relationship between young crown princes. Um, uh, the the clown prince and the crown prince is uh, is a particularly unattractive manifestation of the affinity between the House of Saud and the House of Trump, and I think therefore the media fascination and that very good New York Times piece at the weekend is 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 well merited. Um, it, it's it's an extraordinary illustration of how the how the Trump White House works. 
that somebody with no experience of the Middle East diplomacy or public life um, in general is the sort of key, the key manager of this relationship and many others, namely Jared Kushner. It's, it's, it's uh, uh, really quite a, a, an alarming commentary on, on how the superpower, how the, you know, how the, how the un, uh, undisputed most powerful country uh, in the world is being run at the moment. No, I, you know something, I, I'd never, ever criticize you. I always learn from what you say, but I have to say, it's much worse than that. It's insane that Jared Kushner is off doing this. Jared Kushner's only tie to the Middle East was that he had a vigorous bar mitzvah. You know, he has no diplomatic experience, no experience in the region, no experience with oil, no experience with public service, no experience with any of these companies besides having them bailing him out a little bit. Uh, the notion that somehow he's put in the middle of the most complicated problem in the world and he's supposed to figure this out because, well, because Ivanka picked him and therefore he must be special is cuckoo. I mean, it's it's absolutely nuts. Um, and, you know, the fact that he's now like handing out advice on how to cover up murders just illustrates how cuckoo it is. But Evelyn, you know, we sort of think of all of this as, you know, one crisis after another and a long sort of series of unrelated insanities. But, you know, today, uh, as we tape uh, this record this um, broadcast, the um, the Russians, the Saudis, the Kuwaitis, and the United States stood up at a climate meeting and said, Ugh. "We don't we don't agree with everybody else on climate. We're taking another." Tack. The weather is great. Yeah, it's like how could you talk about global warming? I'm cold today, um, but but but. You know, in other words, there is this there's actually a kind of a de facto alliance of the evil and the stupid um, uh, or the profoundly self-interested here, which is starting to have a different kind of effect. I mean, if you had, you know, told anybody, you know, three years ago that the United States, Russia, Kuwait and Saudi Arabia would be the ones lining up together against climate change. I mean, you know, that you get laughed out of the room, not not that we've done enough on that, but that we would right. never get to this point. Um, so there are sort of, there are tectonic shifts going on and the United States is, you know, allying with the bad guys. Well, this is the problem because David, you know, we have, I would argue, we still have sort of a bifurcated foreign policy in the United States, whereby on a whole host of issues, the U.S., it, it's still business as usual and the U.S. kind of, um, bureaucracy or the expert state, I'm not calling it deep state, the expert state is still prevailing. So a lot of the things that DOD does, um, all of that is business as usual, right? But the, the areas where the Trump administration has people in the White House who are close to the president, who have a certain interest, and now, of course, it's state where Pompeo, who's a true Trump uh, loyalist, sits you know, there are areas where you see this White House and true Trumpianism having an effect. And that and one of those examples is the one that you just mentioned, this this climate change um, conference where we are aligning with the autocrats and 
you know, the, the, the people who deny truth and science. So I don't think it's a good th place to be. There are other examples. Quietly, the Trump administration has been blocking appointments to the WTO court, you know, which sounds very wonky and who really cares, except for the fact that when you have trade disputes, you need to have a mechanism to resolve them because the whole thing will fall apart without that. So there are all kinds of little things that this Trump administration is doing. And the danger is that over time, the cumulative effect could be to really erode trust among nations and pull down the whole international architecture that, you know, I say this every time I come on here, so I know I'm like doomsday lady, but the international architecture that we built in order to prevent war and to provide for commerce among nations. So I agree. I mean, I think it's appalling that the United States is now responsible for basically has been co-opted by the bad guys to take apart a system that serves us. You say you're the doomsday lady, but we know who the doomsday lady really is. <laughs> no, 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 she did a good job. I'm going to let you she, she borrowed the crown of entropy and she wears it well. <laughs> it well, fits it, today. It's it, fitting lately. It fit. Yeah. It, it, it fits quite naturally. But, you know, I do think this does get into this area where Rosa, you know, the, there are subtler, longer term shifts taking place um, where on climate, we're an outlier that might shift back with the next president, but on trade, we're an outlier and that might not shift back with the next president. You might actually get a democratic president who is, is more extreme on trade than than Trump is, or you know, sort of spins it slightly differently, but is in the same kind of place. And I doubt it. I don't think we would see this sort of very aggressive protectionism with any of the. the you don't think you don't think Sherrod Brown would take us there? I, I, well, I think that they are. I hope um, that they are learning from Trump's experience, right? That this is not working out that well. That there are, you know, that 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 if you care about American worker rights issues and you care about, you know, the the if, trying to see if we can return some manufacturing to the United States, there are better ways to go at this than the ways Trump is trying, and I, I think that's becoming very very clear. So while I think they might share some of the, the wariness of uh, global free trade agreements um, uh, and some of the sort of general concerns, I can't see them doubling down on, on this particular approach to protectionism. Well, that's, that's, that's encouraging. You know, Ed, um, the Economist apparently awarded its Idiot of the Year award to Boris Johnson, and you know I thought the Economist was <laughs> that must have been a tough a tough decision. Who would get well, the Idiot of the Year award? <laughs> that's exactly what I'm getting at. I mean, I don't I don't know that I you know I thought the Economist was supposed to have a global scope. Do you actually think your idiots are bigger idiots than our idiots? It it would be a, a, a really sort of difficult one to decide that because yeah you could choose any number of people i mean including from from the left i mean michael evanati you know i think would would certainly be on the short list of any idiot of the year um but i do think that after sort of great deliberation why consultation and and um 
really sort of profound reflection. They have settled on the right answer. It ought to be Boris Johnson. Um, the only question is why he didn't get it earlier um, in previous years, because he's 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 been on the shortlist for for many consecutive years. Uh, it's well, what great. makes him special? What why is he special as idiots go? He's been particularly special this year um, because he resigned when May came out with her checkers plan last July, shortly before Trump made his visit to the UK. In fact, um, he resigned um, in outrage over a deal that he knew all the details of and you could see coming a mile off. uh, and, uh, you know, has, has pretended to take up the populist, um, the mantle of the leader of the populists who've been betrayed, stabbed in the back um, by Theresa May, who's leaving Europe, but not really leaving Europe. Uh, Boris was, you know, one of, at the forefront of the Brexit referendum. He promised all kinds of complete nonsense, like Britain would be making grand trade deals with the rest of the world and growing faster um, uh, as a result, that the extra revenues would enable him to shore up the National Health Service with an extra uh, one point something billion pounds a month um, and all kinds of other um, goodies that were complete fantasies at the time. Um, and have been sort of exposed more and more in the last two years as as, as bald-faced lies. And the, the fact that, you know, he's claiming it's May who's responsible for that rather than reality, um, you know, make, makes him a real idiot. If he becomes prime minister, um, which you can't rule out, and probably being declared idiot of the year by The Economist is helpful to him. Um, but if he becomes prime minister, then I suppose, you know, the joke's on us rather than on him. Um, but it would be the sickest joke I could imagine right now. The man is responsible for, for bringing the house down um, and um, is still seeking to be the chief beneficiary of, the, of this pure, willful vandalism. Evelyn, stand up for America. <laughs> I mean, oh gosh. So yes, Boris Johnson is. I don't want to call people names on 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 internationally syndicated podcasts, but um, oh, go on. Oh yes, but he, but he, yes, but but he's not looking very smart. Having said that, our president also not looking very smart on multiple fronts for bigger offenses, and he just never stops. Uh, so I don't really know why The Economist didn't, as David is hinting, award the, the head of the United States of America with far more power, far more influence, far more gaffes, um, and, and they're not even funny. Like his, his, his stupidity and his lack of knowledge is truly dangerous in a way that Boris Yeltsin's, Boris Yeltsin, but wow. Boris Johnson's is, isn't. So I think Boris Johnson, there are some um, you know, there are some ways to hem him in, if you will. Uh, Trump, it's a little harder. And so I would, and I mean, and his, his knowledge or lack of knowledge about the world is elementary or lower, meaning I, I, if they're grading on intellect, and I didn't read the, the piece that David mentioned, but if they're grading based on intellect and knowledge, you know, our president is, is incredibly lacking in knowledge about things that people learn in in sixth grade social studies in the United States of America. So, 
I, I think you make a very good point, Rosa. I, I just I want to give you the opportunity to also stand up for your country. Um, Boris Johnson would run circles around Donald Trump in any discussion of substance of any sort, would he not? I mean, Donald Trump has got to be the idiot of the year. <laughs> uh, in terms, well, so I guess the the thing about Brexit that that maybe elevates it is is just that it's this year it's an unforced error. <laughs> I mean, it seems so calamitously awful and yet completely unnecessary. Um, whereas Trump's awfulnesses seem more foreordained, you know, I, but it is a tough call. Well, I guess if, if Trump doesn't actually commit, like commit us to a war or destroy us in some way that diminishes us enormously and that we can't really come back from, uh, then what he does will do let net, less net damage than Brexit. Although I don't know that you can blame Boris Johnson for Brexit entirely, but but I, Brexit net net, Ed could be the most damaging move a major country makes this year. Um, uh, you know, the, in terms of diminishing its long term status, uh, we, is that about right? Uh, that that is that is about right. Um, the if if it uh, ends up in a, a hard no deal Brexit, which is precisely what the people like Boris are gunning for, um, namely a complete severance of ties between Britain and Europe and um, all kinds of uh, potential calamities in terms of sort of cancelled flights and um, customs um, seizing up at the um, the French border across the English Channel then you could see uh, British GDP plummet by roughly 8% in percentage points in one year in the worst case scenarios. And in the best case, it will certainly plunge immediately into recession. You remember Britain was you know, the fastest growing economy in Europe, large economy in Europe um, before the referendum and is now at the slowest. And that could could very well look look like the rosy days if hard Brexit happens. He is pushing for hard Brexit. I should add, when you say that Boris Johnson would out out argue Donald Trump on policy issues and knowledge of the world, etc., I, I wouldn't overestimate him. You know, watch the interviews he's done with BBC. Watch his documentary that was um, where they were flies on the wall. Um, but BBC documentary with Boris Johnson when he was foreign secretary. He did not have a clue. He had read no briefing papers. He was getting his countries mixed up. He was mixing up um, really bad um, sort of Eton, uh, Eton sixth form um, history lessons with, with today's reality. It, it was an extremely embarrassing, you know, quintessentially British kind of ignorance. Um, it, it's so different to Donald <laughs> Trump's. Um, but, but just as idiotic and ignorant and 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 completely careless of his own ignorance not a shade of embarrassment there a boastful kind of ignorance that is um bringing i think you know permanently uh, um, potentially permanent harm permanent and irreversible harm to britain in a way that we can still at least to some degree speculate trump could be reversed i, I don't think trump you know, will will we'll ever will ever leave without leaving a mark. But Trump can at least be um, uh, repudiated. There is not going to be on current course any chance to repudiate Brexit. Well, you know, we've come to the end of our show here, and I don't want to give myself the last word. But 
you make a good case about Trump versus Boris Johnson, but I don't know if you would fare as well if I said Boris Johnson versus Louis Gohmert or Devin <laughs> Nunez or Matt <laughs> Getz um, or That's Dana Rohrabacher. Dana, Dana We've got idiots, Ed. That's one of the things about being a big country. We have an idiot surplus in America. We've got idiots. We could lend you idiots if you needed extra idiots. Um, and many of them are That's in high. Good idea. Why don't I have a sort of lend lease program for idiots? Brilliant. I, I, I think you should distribute <laughs> your surplus efficiently and equitably around the globe. <laughs> well, we try. We are trying, Ed. <laughs> I think Devin Nunes would love a spell in Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea. I think, you know, that they, they haven't got any American idiots. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe he could go to that island off the coast of India where that, that poor missionary oh. uh, made his last stand. His demise. Yeah. yeah, but you know, I think you spread if you, if you, the good news of, of, of anti-globalism <laughs> in the Andaman Islands. Yeah. But, but, you know, you're, I understand why you're saying that, Ed, but clearly the whole purpose of this exercise at home and abroad was for Putin to undermine Europe. And so if, in fact, his master plan is fully carried out, then Trump will start sending these people off to the UK and across Europe. And, you know, Devin Nunez will settle in, you know, Provence or something like that. And, you no, know, actually, he... Portugal, that was one of his big issues, was always the basing in Portugal, believe it or not. Well, that's fine, you know, but the point is we will just ship them all out there. And, you know, some of these guys could arrive in a country and bring its average IQ down several points just simply by arriving there. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's, the, that's the world we have for you. But that's why Deep State Radio is here. It's why it's always lively and fun and why we hope you'll come back soon to hear more um, from the, the the co-holders of the crown of uh, uh, thorny crown of entropy, and next week we'll have our tiara of optimism holder Corey Shaki back. Um, but uh, there's a lot more in store this week, and uh, we're going to have a one-on-one -on -one podcast with David Sanger, who was going to join us for this, but who got hung up in jury duty. So we'll talk to him. Uh, separately. And then a little later in the week, we'll do our second podcast. Um, and the only reason we're doing that is a lot of crap is going to happen between now and then. And we just don't want to be caught by the news and be behind the news because it seems like every day something massive is happening. Uh, fortunately, we will have good people like these, including, I hope, uh, specifically these, back for that. Um, and I want to thank you, uh, Evelyn and Ed and Rosa, uh, for joining us. And everybody else, go to deepstatenetwork.com, sign up, deepstateradionetwork.com, sign up, become a member, listen to other stuff. Uh, follow us on uh, Twitter at, at deepstateradio. Uh, and... Um, and we've got some new and exciting things coming, so stay tuned. Uh, thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.